Hi, welcome back to Eight Words or Less. This is the podcast series that distills leadership and management books into, surprise, surprise, eight words or less. Some of you know me already. I am Sammy and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm James. I'm your other host. So this episode, Sammy, we're looking at a book written by Ray Dalio called Principles. Uh, This was recommended by a leader, uh, Bex Beer, who will be joining us to to talk about the book and her insights uh, in the next episode. I thought it was really interesting. What were your thoughts, Sammy? Well, it's packed with insights, certainly. And I also found it quite dense. So, yeah, how did you get Yeah, it's not a small book. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me give a go at describing the book. So Ray Dalio, the founder of Bridgewater Associates, a prominent investment management firm, and the world's 79th wealthiest person at some stage, he's known as one of the most successful entrepreneurs of our time. And in this book, he shares the principles that helped him create unique results in life and business. His book, Principles, has three parts. Part one is about the author's journey, aimed at setting a context for the principles, Part two is about Ray's life principles, and part three focuses on work principles. So Dalio argues that life, management, economics, and investing can all be systemized into rules and understood like machines. His lessons are built around the cornerstones of radical truth and radical transparency, And they include Dalio laying out the most effective ways for individuals and organizations to make decisions, approach challenges, and build strong teams. He also describes the innovative tools the firm uses to bring ideas to life, such as creating baseball cards for all employees that distill their strengths and weaknesses, and employing computerized decision-making systems to make believability-weighted decisions. In the context of the book, principles serve as the foundations for behaviour that get you what you want out of life. So in the author's words, principles connect your values to your actions. Dalio attributes his success to these principles, which he suggests any of us can apply, no matter what we are trying to achieve. So James, what is your central message in eight words or less? Thanks, Sammy. So my central message is transparency and openness are foundations for success. James, what is your first petal? So you touched on it in the introduction. Uh, My first petal is around this concept of radical transparency. So in all all three sections of the book, uh, the author talks a lot about the importance of how he created a culture that was a proper, authentic idea meritocracy. And the criticality of radical transparency in making this a reality. He says that this is in part anchored in his own experience of when he lost everything. That experience made him realize that he had to look at himself objectively and embrace weaknesses, embrace his own weaknesses. And you can't do that unless you are being transparent and you're asking people around you to be transparent. And what I found interesting, Sammy, I mean, you've worked with a lot of organizations. Sometimes you hear the word transparency um, and, you know, companies will talk about it. 
the reality falls quite short of of what's being proposed or, or, or suggested. As I was reading through this and I was looking at what they've actually done, it it looks like, from what was covered in the book anyway, that this is actually genuinely followed at Bridgewater. And he talks about, for example, early in the in the life cycle of the company, when there, there weren't that many employees, he shares a memo that was sent by his leadership team. And they acknowledge some of the strengths that, that he brings. But they specifically said in the email, a section in a memo was actually what what Ray doesn't do well. And you know, some of the language they use is, is almost quite ruthless. He says, they say that Ray sometimes says or does things to employees which make them feel incompetent, unnecessary, humiliated, overwhelmed, belittled oppressed or otherwise bad. The odds of this happening rises when Ray is under stress. And at these times, his words and actions towards others create animosity and leave a lasting impression. And I think, you know, to have a culture where that type of feedback can be given to the CEO is quite interesting and, and quite unusual. And the, the author, Ray, was was quite I thought quite open as saying that this feedback, you know, it hurts and it surprised him, but it allowed him to objectively see where his actions were causing problems. And and you mentioned some of the tools they use, but you know, they 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 go pretty far to making the, an organization as transparent as possible. Apparently, they record virtually all their meetings and make them available for everyone. You talked about this baseball card system that creates transparency around strengths and weaknesses. Well, it sounds pretty brutal, if I'm honest. I think he's in the position of being the CEO and being able to canvas that feedback that level of transparency might be useful. I wonder for the people who work for him or in different positions within the organisation, how that level of transparency would be received. But I agree in principle, it's a good thing. And many organisations have transparency even as a value. And yet, I've been speaking to a couple of my friends lately who are doing their self-appraisals. And the process seems veiled in mystery and secrecy, almost as if the leadership teams are getting ammunition needed for the dreaded calibration meetings. And my notice is, those kind of processes that are not as transparent as they could be, they do seem to consume energy and distract people from delivering the outcomes that they are employed to deliver on for the company. So when I founded Marmalade Fish, I was really passionate about trying to create a team dynamic where we would actively ask for feedback from each other, our clients, and even find ways to ask for feedback from the communities that we serve. And what we know is that feedback is usually most useful in bite-sized chunks and more often than not delivered in the moment. Trying to avoid triggers and the beauty of asking for feedback rather than being passive and waiting to receive it, often in mid-year or year-end cycles, means that we're constantly improving performance. It is underpinned by values, but it is less likely to be a trigger, which means the person receiving the feedback is in a more resourceful state. And if you are more resourceful, you're more likely to listen or hear it and then do something useful with it, which is surely the point of feedback. The author acknowledges how tough this approach is and how difficult it is for people to adapt to it because no, no one feels comfortable getting 
with full transparency, I think. I think it's very difficult. And he also says that none of these principles should just be, you know, lifted and shifted. Everyone's got to be able to come with principles that resonate with them, that are effective for the culture and the way they work. But I do think what was interesting about reading this was he was all, your word of trigger. He was almost saying that actually, if you're if you're too concerned about the trigger, it may be that you're then avoiding giving the message in some cases. And he emphasizes that actually tough love, as he refers to it, as long as it's done from the right place with the intention of providing transparent feedback that will help that person to improve, is one of the best gifts you can give, is one of the most important ways of of demonstrating care. And I don't think that would work for everyone, but it was interesting. And the one thing I did like, and you talked about how that's easy for the CEO, but I think it's good that it seems that that is that is role modelled because quite often in organisations transparency or feedback seems to only go one way from top down, and I think that doesn't necessarily create a great atmosphere or a great organisation that's really trying to promote feedback. I love that you've added that layer to our discussion because James, of course, it's not the trigger that makes me unresourceful. It's me and my self-talk that can create that unresourceful state. So if the culture of the organisation genuinely encourages this passionate, unfiltered debate and this level of radical transparency, and people feel psychologically safe, then of course it can work. I think the challenge is, if you don't have that psychological safety, then I'm not sure that people will receive it in the way that it's intended and then be fruitful or productive for the company. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I think I, I think there are there are ways in which you can help you can help people to get into that place. And and that perhaps isn't addressed as much in the book. So maybe this is a starting point and, and you need to layer on those those levels of um thoughtful uh thoughtful delivery in, in a way. But fundamentally is is critical and, and you know it speaks to the central message of why transparency and openness are foundation for success. Wonderful. And James, what is your second petal? So the second petal is the importance of embracing reality and understanding that failure is impetus that fuels your personal success loop. So the author starts this this section. He talks about the fact that fundamentally, if you're not failing, you're not pushing your limits. And if you're not pushing your limits, you're not maximizing your potential. He says that along your journey, whatever journey you're in, whatever career or options you've taken, you'll have to experience painful failures. And it's important to realize that they can either be the impetus that fuels your personal evolution, or they can ruin you, depending on how you react to them. And the key to how you react is whether you face into the reality. You have the opportunity to choose healthy and painful truth to reflect on that and to make the changes that are necessary. Or you can go the other way into an unhealthy but sometimes comfortable delusion. And I think that's interesting. It did make me also think of your book, actually, Sammy, when you talk about whenever something happens to you, you have a moment between when that event occurs 
and your your reaction to that event. I thought this was really interesting. You, you know, the word as well, evolution and these success loops comes through again and again in his book. This learning comes very much from his own experience, this, this incredibly painful and dramatic crucible moment that he himself went through back in August 1982, where while it was early in his career, he had already got quite a lot of credibility and he had very publicly and correctly predicted the pending Mexico debt default at that time. And he used that platform to incredibly confidently and loudly put proclaimed to the whole world that the US was heading for depression, something that he got completely wrong. And, and he describes this experience in the book like a, a series of blows to the head with a baseball bat. He, he was so wrong and so publicly wrong that it cost him almost everything he had built. He had to let go of every single employee and he even had to borrow $4,000 from his father until he could sell his second car. This in so many ways, is truly a, a crucible moment, the very definition of a crucible moment, to have been so lauded you know, at one place, to have been riding so high and come crashing down to a stage where you have to let go of everyone and even borrow some money just to keep going. That must have been just incredibly tough to go through, but he sees that as critical to his ultimate success, to, to what he ended up building through Bridgewater. And this is what frames his thinking around the evolutionary success loops, that you put yourself in that uncomfortable position, that when you fail, as is inevitable in his view, you lean into that, you learn from it, and you use it to fuel your own development and fuel your own personal evolution. Generally speaking, I do like to lean in and feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because I think failing is a strong word, but if I think about buying even a new pair of shoes, when I first wear them, they feel really uncomfortable. But I know over time, they're going to start to wear in. So if I think about those uncomfortable shoes on my development or being bruised during something that I'm learning or exploring for the first time, that level of discomfort that I'm experiencing means that I'm at my edge, which means for me, that my comfort zone will eventually expand. So a little bit of bruising means that my ego has come up and I get the opportunity to, to grow. The interesting thing I think that was added to this in the book was, and this is, speaks to the embracing reality side of things, we shouldn't also be upset to find out that you're bad at something. Fa failure can be a useful tool you know, to, to identify and observe yourself more objectively. And the author says that once you find out you're not, not as good at something as you thought, you actually can be happy you found that out because actually it improves your chances of success, of getting what you want, because you can then either train yourself and develop yourself to get better at that, or what the author often says, surround yourself with people who will balance out that weakness. So it's not just about you know, failure is not just about learning from failure. It's about embracing into what that teaches and accepting that we can't all be great at everything, identifying what those parts of our character are that we're not as good at, what, what skills, experience, what, what, what we're lacking, um, and, and come to terms with that. And, and through that approach, you're more likely to, to succeed. And that's why transparency and openness are foundations for success. Fantastic.
fantastic. And what is your third and final petal? So the third and final petal is to be radically open-minded. So the book, as you said in the introduction, it talks about a number of things. It talks about what the author sees as the requirements to make good decision-making. And he says that the two biggest barriers to making a good decision are your ego and your blind spots. He says, to be effective, you must not let your need to be right to be more important than your need to find out what's true. If you are too proud of what you know or how good you are at something, you will learn less, make inferior decisions and fall short of your potential. In other words, you need to replace your attachment to always being right with the joy of what of learning what's true. You quite often go into a discussion and go into a, an, an argument or a meeting with the goal, maybe subconsciously, of wanting to convince people that you're right. Um, but the author says that actually we've got to remember that we all have blind spots and what we don't know will always be much greater than what we do know. And people make bad decisions because they forget this. They're so certain they're right or they're so keen to convince other people they're right. They don't allow themselves to see that better alternatives exist. Yeah. And also when you're tapping into different perspectives, are you able to so-called disagree and commit without then holding the energy of hoping that you're proved right in the long term? So I guess it's about having strong opinions, but holding them more lightly to cover off some of those blind spots. But then when you move forward as a team, really being behind whatever the collective decision is, even if you didn't think that was right in the first place. So I think it's interesting because the author does say that being open-minded is not the same as accepting other people's conclusions. He said you can be open-minded and assertive at the same time. But I think what he does emphasize is, and I thought this was really, really interesting, one of my big takeaways, is that it's pointless to get angry with each other when we disagree. Because people, maybe if I can pick on your your wording there, strong opinions, because people come in to discussions with strong opinions, quite often they will view that as confrontation. Whereas he says that you need to look at this as a, he uses a phrase, thoughtful disagreement. So that might speak to what you were saying about hold them lightly. He said, you know, if you look at this as a, as a thoughtful disagreement, then any time when you're holding different opinions, different views, it can be seen as an opportunity for learning and arriving at the most true answer. And I thought that was a really good way of, of thinking about that. If ever you feel yourself getting angry in a discussion, if you can take a mental step back and say, actually, It is good that two of us or three of us have different views on this because it will allow us to understand the logic, the thinking behind it, and arrive at the right decision. I was fascinated to witness the Quaker model to being able to hear all individual voices while providing a mechanism for dealing with disagreements. And I've seen some companies adapt it for secular settings in the context of consensus decision-making So briefly, the process includes multiple concerns and information get shared until the sense of the whole group is clear. And then the discussion involves active listening and sharing of information, 
because the norms limit the number of times one asks to speak to make sure that each speaker is fully heard. And then they have a facilitator who identifies areas of agreement and names the disagreements in order to push the discussion deeper. And then the group as a whole becomes responsible for the decision and it belongs to the group. So the goal isn't unanimity, it's unity. Sammy, thanks for sharing that. I think it's it's a really good example and another good illustration of these tools are out there. You can find them in different places, but it's being conscious about the fact that actually open-mindedness is not easy. Ray Dalio in the book talks about uh, a, a technique, the two-minute rule, where no one is allowed to interrupt someone for two minutes to allow them to get thoughts out and to articulate it. But it requires consciousness around it. It requires realizing the importance of it and the fact that it's difficult. Sammy, I think that's a, a good way to, to come into the central message. And can you remember what it is? Your central message is openness and transparency are foundational for success. I think it's close enough. I, I had transparency and openness are foundations for success, but uh, I think that's a win. Good stuff. Well, thank you, James. Thanks, of course, to Ray Dalio and all of our listeners. As always, use the hashtag eight words or less to share your insights and experiences. And if you've not already done so, click subscribe so you can download our previous episodes and make sure you never miss a new one. Bye for now. Thank you.